Israeli and Palestinian leaders are meeting at this moment in Washington. Their first face-to-face -face talks in two years. Israel launches third day of attacks on Gaza. A second day of riots, which have now claimed at least seven lives. A tsunami of instability. The suicide blasts in the Moscow metro system uh, leads our news today. Water and fuel prices have also gone up. Jordan, the Palestinian territory, Sudan, Yemen, the list really goes on. The wars and the terrorism, this is all the birth pain. These are the beginnings of what's coming. Okay, so I, I think Rick already told you that uh, the earlier services had tons and tons of people uh, in them. The only reason I say anything to you right now is that uh, first service overflowed like crazy, second service overflowed. Uh, we told all of those people who could not find seats to come to this service. So I, just so that that doesn't sideswipe you next week, I would just encourage you next week to kind of be sure you're here kind of on time so that you make sure that you have a seat uh, in this particular service. So just so you know, they may be coming uh, next, uh, next week here. They're coming. Okay. Uh, we are, we're getting ready to do a series together. It's, it's five weeks. Uh, we're, we're talking about uh, end times. And here's what you need to know. There, there's just no way in five weeks that we're going to be able to cover all this information. It's just not possible because there's so much information. But what we are going to do is we're going to get up, we're going to fly over this at, at about 30,000 feet. You're going to end up with an absolutely clear understanding and the ability to go, I, I, I can map this. I know, I know what's coming, how it's doing. You're not going to know necessarily all the detail of it, but you're going to go, I get this. I know this information. If you're in the room and you go, look, I just, I just got to go deeper. I got to get more. I think, again, Rick showed you that book. It's uh, Revelation for Dummies. It's probably one of the most powerful. It's one of the best written books that I've ever seen on the topic. Here's why I like it. Because it is absolutely biblical. It's a great, accurate book. But it's written in normal English uh, in layman's terms. And so anybody can pick it up and, and you'll understand what it is. So if you're interested, even though we've sold out already today, Go to the bookstore, just say, look, I want to be on the list. Be sure and order one for me so they know how many more uh, to order and nobody gets uh, left out on that. We probably should have guessed uh, that we would have a crowd uh, for this conversation. Uh, years ago, I was a youth pastor, and uh, you always knew uh, that you could get a room full of high schoolers if you talked about one of three topics. Anybody want to guess what the number one topic to fill a room with high school kids was? Sex. Number two was end times. Number three was, is there sex in the end times? <laughs> so I don't know what that says about the Cornerstone crowd and the fact that uh, we've been filling the room up all day, but uh, it's fun and we're here and uh, we're going to dig in. Now here's uh, what you need to know about today. Um, we're going to tackle and ask this question, is it reasonable to believe that what the Bible says prophetically is true? Now, let me tell you why we're tackling that topic today. In a room like this, in a congregation, there are hundreds of us uh, who 
maybe aren't as far along in our journey, maybe are fairly new to this stuff, and we're not sure how we feel or how confident we are in biblical prophecy. And we're, as we get going into this thing, it's gonna, there's weird stuff. Let's just be honest. There's weird stuff, and there is amazing stuff and scary stuff. And so as we're doing this, there's going to be a point that if you don't have confidence that what the Bible says prophetically is accurate, we're going to lose you. And there's the potential that we would leave hundreds of people behind in this conversation because they don't have confidence in the accuracy. So here's what I'm going to do. Today we're just going to spend time saying, is it reasonable to believe that what is written in the book of Revelation, that what happens in Matthew chapter 24, that what happens in Ezekiel, that it's accurate information, that is it reasonable to believe that? Next week we're going to tackle in probably what is the most controversial uh, question within uh, this whole end times thing. We're going to talk about the rapture together. You're not going to want to miss that. But we're going to start at the beginning today to hopefully so we don't lose anybody on the journey. We're going to ask this question, is it reasonable to believe that what is in prophecy in the Bible is accurate? Okay, so how many in the room have heard of a guy named Nostradamus? Okay, a bunch of us. Matter of fact, right now, uh, if somebody is going to quote a non-biblical prophet, chances are it's going to be uh, Nostradamus. He, he is the man, apparently. So let me get, what percentage of Nostradamus' predictions have been proved to be accurate? Anybody have a sense of, what would you guess? What would you just guess? What, what percentage? Zero. No, it's more than zero. We'll give him more. Ten. Anyone going for 25? 20? Anybody going for 30? Higher or lower? Higher, right? 40%? I mean, if you were a good guesser, couldn't you kind of get close to 40% maybe? Higher? I feel like the price is right. Higher or lower? Higher or lower? Okay, here's what you need to know. Many of Nostradamus' predictions are like a fortune cookie. Uh, they are so ambiguous. I mean, they are so broad that, of course, uh, they've come true. So their predictions like, um, one day you will have a happy day. <laughs> or, or you are going to have an unexpected financial turn. Well, <laughs> All right, but even if you give Nostradamus credit for that, in other words, you say, all right, every ambiguous, every broad sweeping prediction, every one that I mean anybody could have said that and it would have come true. If you give him 100% credit for every one of those predictions, you ready? Nostradamus was right 9% of the time. 9% of the time. And yet here's the thing this guy is supposed to be stellar. This is the guy that we quote. This is the guy that secular sources go back and say, it's amazing the accuracy of this guy in predicting the future. A anybody know what the biblical standard for accuracy in prophecy is? Okay, so here we go. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to read this to you. We're going to go through today. We're going to do a whole bunch of verses. I won't make you turn uh, to this one. Let me read to you the biblical standard for accuracy on this topic of prophecy. If you just happen to want to go there, it's the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 18. It'll be in the, kind of in the front of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Don't worry. You don't have to go there. I got some verses I'm going to take you to later. I'm going to wear your fingers out today, uh, but this one I'll read for you. Here it is. This is the biblical standard for accuracy when it comes to prophecy. I will raise up, this is God talking, for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. 
I will put my words in his mouth, and I will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will hold him accountable. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. Not good words for Nostradamus. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true. So how many mistakes do you get to make in biblical prophecy? None. If you are 99% right and you miss on one-tenth of one percent, the Bible says, take him outside the city and kill him. He's not from God. The biblical standard is 100% accuracy on every detail. That is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet, uh, that prophet has spoken presumptuously, do not be afraid of him. And all of that to say, here's, here's the biblical standard, that when you and I read something in the book of Revelation, when you and I look in Matthew chapter 24 in just a little while, when, when we look at those things in the Bible that are prophetic, we might as well be reading tomorrow's headlines today. That what you and I are reading, no matter how out there they are, no matter how much we go, wow, that, that's just, that, that stretches the imagination, that you and I can read that with confidence because God has said the standard is 100% accuracy and you are literally reading tomorrow's headlines today when you read biblical prophecy. So let's just start here. Let's just go and take for a moment or two just a little bit of a look at the track record of how the Bible is done so far when it comes to things prophetic. Because here's the deal. Hundreds of biblical prophecies have already been fulfilled primarily in the life of Jesus. How did the Bible do uh, so far so that you and I can have confidence about what it will do when it talks to us about the future? So again, I'm, I'm going to turn uh, to the book of Isaiah. Uh, you don't have to go there. I'll read this for you. It's Isaiah chapter 53. Now, here's what I want you to do as I read this. I want you to tell me what historical moment, what historical event is Isaiah talking about? Okay, I'll read it. You listen. You tell me what historical, what, what event in time is Isaiah talking about in chapter 53? Here we go. It's verse 1. Here's what it says. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. What event is that? Crucifixion of Jesus. We, we just celebrated that last week uh, with Easter. And stop and think about some of the detail in there. Uh, he, he would find his death among criminals. Uh, he would be buried with the rich. Uh, he would be pierced. He would remain silent in front of those who accused him. Here's the deal. Isaiah, written 700 years before the time of Jesus. Now, here's the deal. For years and years and years and years, biblical critics pointed to Isaiah 53, and they said, look, so clearly a hoax, so clearly fraudulent. Here's what happened. There is no way to have that detail. There, there is no way, matter of fact, most of the theology that's in that passage is New Testament theology. There's nothing like that in the Old Testament. There's no way. So here's what's happened. Somebody, after the crucifixion of Jesus, went back to the book of Isaiah and added this chapter in to deceive people because there is no way. Matter of fact, one of the things they would say is this. It talks about crucifixion. And the reality is crucifixion wasn't invented for another 400 years from the time that this has supposedly been written. It's impossible. Nineteen forty-seven. A little Bedouin boy is taking care of sheep in an area right outside, right around the Dead Sea. In that area, if you've ever been there, it's kind of deserty, but there's all these little rolling, knolly little hills. And uh, one of his sheep had gone up on one of the hills, and they're pretty steep, and so that he didn't have to crawl up the hill to run his sheep down. He picked up a rock, threw the rock at his sheep, hoping to scare the sheep back down the hill. He missed the sheep, and the rock uh, flew further, and he heard something break. He went up to investigate, found a cave, and on the inside of the cave, he found jars, and inside the jars, all sorts of documents from a community of people that had gone away, that had been uh, wiped out over a hundred years before the time of Christ. Amongst all of their uh, information, all of their writings, one book of the Bible was there. Anybody want to guess what book of the Bible that was? Isaiah. And in that book of the Bible, written hundreds of years before Christ, Isaiah 53. Now, guys, here's what I'm just going to ask. If the critics said, it's impossible, there is no way the Bible could be that accurate or have that information, it has to be a forgery. In the moment in which you and I prove that it's not, how convincing is that as to the accuracy of prophecy in Scripture? And you just need to know the critics have gone silent. 
There's a guy by the name of John Stoner. He's actually the uh, head or was the head of a mathematics department at a secular university. He was a believer, and so he gave to his, get, get this, his secular students the assignment, the mathematical assignment to, to, to establish the probability that Jesus could have fulfilled prophecy. And in the process of doing that, he gave them eight prophecies. Now, here, here's how that works. Let me just give an example. The Bible says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So all you do when you're trying to figure out mathematical probabilities, you say, okay, in the history of the world, how many people have been born in Bethlehem? Okay, divide that into the number of people who've been born anywhere else. That's the probability that someone would accidentally fulfill that prophecy. Does that make sense? Stoner gave his mathematics students eight prophecies and said, figure it out. It's, it's a mathematical equation. What's the likelihood that someone accidentally fulfilled these eight prophecies about Jesus? When his students came back, the number, the, the unlikelihood was so unbelievably high that Stoner was embarrassed to publish the number. So here's what he did. He went and took all of their calculations and he reduced them down so that he could get a number that was less than because the original number was so astronomical. So let me give you an example. One of the prophecies that he gave them was that Jesus would ride in Jerusalem on a donkey. Okay, so you just calculate how many people have ever ridden in Jerusalem on a donkey. Divide into the number of people who haven't. Okay? Stoner reduced it down and called it one in a hundred. So one out of every hundred people who've ever lived rode in Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, here, here's the deal. Just to tell you how far it is. There's, there's about 700 people in this room right now. So that means seven of us would have ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. Okay? So how many people in the room, you've ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey? You have. Come on up on stage, man. No. Okay? You, you get how far he took that number down so that no one could criticize. And despite doing that over and over and over and over again on this mathematical form, you want to hear the number, the number of probability that someone would accidentally fulfill those eight prophecies. And you can find them online. Look up John Stoner. You'll find them online. They're all there. Here's the probability they came up with. Is it coming up on screen? Yes, no. Here we go. Oh, there it is. Okay. All right. So here's the number they came up with. 10 to the 17th power, which is not showing up on screen. All right. I'm going to do what they told me to do. I'm going to turn it off. I'm going to turn it on. <laughs> there we go. All right. 10 to the 17th power. How many people know math in the room? Okay, this is a big number, okay? Matter of fact, let me, let me write this number out for you. Okay. One hundred quadrillion to one. Not 100 million, not 100 billion, not 100 trillion, 100 quadrillion to one. If the national debt ever reaches that, run away, okay? 
100 quadrillion to 1, okay? It is way past, you ready for this? It is way past the mathematical number for impossibility. Let, 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 me, get, let me give some examples of how hard this is, okay? If you were to take the state of Texas, cover the state of Texas in silver dollars 18 inches deep, how many of you have driven across the state of Texas? Four days later, right? Okay, state of Texas, 18 inches deep, silver dollars. Now you take one silver dollar and paint it red. You fly over the state of Texas randomly. Drop that silver dollar into the mix. Stir the pot. And then you say to someone, you have one chance to pull the red silver dollar. What if someone did it? I mean, what if someone on their first try, state of Texas, 18 inches deep, pulled the silver dollar? You'd say they cheated, didn't you? I mean, how else would you? They'd had to have cheated. God, when he wrote prophecy, cheated. He already knew what was going to happen. The odds, ready, are a hundred quadrillion to one that even eight of the prophecies could come true. Here, here's, you want to blow your mind a little more? There's more than eight prophecies about Jesus' first coming. The number's way, 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 too small. Matter of fact, you ready for this? There are 324 fulfilled prophecies in Jesus' first coming. Which simply means this, guys, that you and I, when we read the prophecies about what's going to happen next, can do this with absolute confidence. It's like reading tomorrow's headlines today because it has never missed and the odds are impossible that God was guessing. Okay, so here's the deal. If there was ever a generation that ought to believe in biblical prophecy? I think it's us. Here's why. There are things in biblical prophecy that 2,000 years ago when they were written seemed impossible. They seemed impossible. And yet today, because of what's happened with technology and what's happened in advancement, you and I not only know they're not impossible, but they're probable. If there was ever a generation that should read the Bible and say, oh my goodness, <laughs> That's unfolding right in front of us. It ought to be this generation. Okay? So let me show you a couple of those that I think will surprise you on the deal. Okay, we're going to go, and we're all going to go together now. We're going to go to the book of Revelation. This is where your fingers are going to start getting worked out. Revelation chapter uh, 13. And just wrote, last book of the Bible. This is the easiest verse search you're ever going to have in this room, okay? Revelation chapter 13. Now, here's the deal, okay, and I need to say it right up front. When you and I read Revelation, there's a whole bunch of really weird symbolism in there. But here's what you got to get. you got to remember that John, when he is writing the book of Revelation, is writing it 2,000 years ago. So think about the incredibly hard task of describing things that you and I take for granted today 2,000 years ago when there's nothing that looks anything like it. Think about this for a second. 
2,000 years ago. Imagine trying to describe an airplane. I mean, I mean, what would you say if you were trying to tell someone 2,000 years ago because God just gave you a vision and you saw an airplane? What would you say? You'd say, well, there was this snake, and it had wings, and it swallowed people. <laughs> and then it flew for a while, and when it landed, it vomited the people back up again. I mean, how, how would you, 2,000 years ago, how would you describe an airplane? And that's one of the reasons that as you and I go to read the book, you all of a sudden, well, it's got dragons. And here's what we just, don't, we just don't know right now. There are moments in which you say, wait a minute, is John describing demons and angels and maybe, maybe? Or is he describing things that are present today? He just has no words with which to describe those. And so he's saying, hey, there's this flying snake swallowing people. And we don't know, okay? But let, let's look at a couple passages that I just think are remarkable, remarkable because, 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 you ready? When John wrote these passages, they weren't possible. And today, they're probable. And if there was ever a generation that ought to look in the Bible and see Scripture come, you and I are watching it come alive. So here it is. It's Revelation chapter 13. Here's, here's what's happening in this passage. Antichrist, who's going to be here during the tribulation, we're going to talk about the tribulation in a couple weeks, He's going to be here during the tribulation. The Bible says that he is going to require everybody to get a mark. He's going to require everybody uh, to somehow uh, acquiesce and give in to him in order to have any way of doing commerce, any way of having any sort of a business transaction, buying bread, anything you want to buy or sell, you've got to have the mark in order to complete the transaction. Matter of fact, here's the passage. Revelation chapter uh, 13 Verse 16, he, talking about Antichrist, also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is, and this is where we get it, 666. Now, here's the deal, guys. Good chance that when that moment comes, it probably isn't going to have 666. Six is actually the number of man. And all that's really saying in that moment is simply this, that whatever this mark is, it is a man-made thing. It is a man-contrived thing that is the mark of the beast. Now, think about this. How do you do that? I mean, if it is a mark or a tattoo, I mean, couldn't people forge that? I mean, couldn't people, you know, like get a black felt marker and, and write, you know, you know, how, how, but it says here, no one is going to be able to make a transaction unless they've got this mark. Now, again, remember, John, 2,000 years ago, trying to describe, you, you get that we're moving toward a cashless society. That it, somewhere in our lifetimes, they're just going to do away with paper money, and it's just too cumbersome. We're all going to be swiping debit cards. But you get that that's probably short-lived too, right? Because of identity theft, and someone can steal your card. We're not far off that they're going to come back and say, look, that, that's just too parallel. That's just, that's just too much exposure. So how do you make sure that only the person who owns the account gets to access the account? 
You guys ever heard like retinal scanning? You know, they and it scans your retina and bam, because everyone's retina is different. Anybody ever watched them do it? And you walk up and you lean your forehead against. How else are you going to identify? Well, they're fingerprints. So now I take my hand and I place it. My fingerprint is scanned. Now no one's stealing my identity. And guys, I, I just don't know. I'm just saying, stop and think about this. 2,000 years ago when this was written, it would have been impossible to control. It would have been impossible to keep people. But nowadays, and I, and I don't know, I'm just saying, if anybody would say, wow, that's, that's not just possible, that's probable. And, and if you're struggling with that, okay, then let's just put a chip in. We're doing it to our dogs, right? You know, little chip. Where's Tom now? Oh, he's walking down Main Street. <laughs> you, you, get, you get that what, when they wrote it was impossible, Today is probable. Let, let me give you another one. Still in Revelation. Revelation chapter 9. Okay, in this passage, it describes that a star falls from heaven and then creatures are released. Uh, and these creatures come out and they have the power to torment people for five months, okay? And it's an interesting description that John gives. So here, let me read the description. Here's what I don't know, guys. I don't know if it's demons. I don't know. I don't know if it's, I don't know. But if it's not, if John is trying to describe an airplane or some other modern thing, Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, here's the description of these beasts that come out and torment uh, men. Uh, starting in verse 4, uh, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant of the trees, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Uh, they were given power to kill them. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like the, ag- the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death but will not be able to find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. And then it goes on to describe these beasts, okay? The locusts look like, so whatever these beasts are, they look like locusts. Horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces, but their hair was like a woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and the chariots rushing to battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. I, I, I don't know, I don't know. Am I up there? Is it possible? I don't know. I don't know. But if you're John 2,000 years ago trying to describe a helicopter, how would you describe it? And again, guys, I don't know. I don't know if it's actual D. I don't know. 
I'm just saying if there was ever a generation that would read prophecy and go, oh my goodness, what seemed impossible now seems probable. Let me give you one more. It's Revelation chapter 11. How'd you guys like that artwork? Years and years of art school. You guys can figure out I'm a Bible guy, I'm not an arty guy, okay. A little autistic, but not artistic, all right. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, uh, verse 7, Uh, here's uh, what it says. Now, here's the moment happening. Um, There's two prophets, and these two prophets end up speaking in the temple area in Jerusalem. And uh, as they're doing that, they're kind of like John the Baptist dudes. They're all like, repent, turn to God, right now is the time, the end of the world is near. And in the process of preaching, which the world is pretty offended that these guys are so in your face, they also then speak judgment. So there's all sorts of famine going on, there's all sorts of um, illness going on, because these guys are saying, look, this is the spanking that God is going to do to try to get you to repent and turn. So the world hates these guys because they've been too bold, too truthful, and then they've been speaking pestilence and famine upon the world. And so the world hates them. And they end up, Antichrist kills them, okay? But watch this description. It's Revelation chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 7, because you and I are going to see something that was impossible that today is probable. Here we go. Now, when we have fin- they had finished their testimony, talking about those two prophets, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, Antichrist, and in- overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Gomorrah, where also their Lord was crucified, so it's Jerusalem. For three and a half days, men of every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse to bury them. Now, guys, whoa, 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 catch that. People from every tribe, every language, Every nation will watch these guys die and gaze upon them. Now think about this. 50 years ago, that's impossible. 50 years ago, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't do that. But today, do you realize that just last week, just a few days ago, 2 billion people watched the royal wedding at the moment it was going on? They're going to be watching this on their iPhones. They're going to be pulling up their iPads. They're going to be on the Internet. And literally for the first time in history, the entire world, every tribe, every nation, will be able to instantaneously watch this event. And you realize that at the moment it was written, it was impossible. And today it's probable. If there was ever a generation who was convinced of the reality and the likelihood of prophecy, this generation has watched it unfold. Which brings us to the question, you go, okay, oh, whoa, whoa. So you're freaking me out a little bit, Lynn. Uh, how much time do we have? I mean, how soon is this stuff going to happen? Okay, so here we go. One last time, told you we're going to do a lot of Scripture. Book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. It's going to be the left in your Bible, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, by the way, guys, is probably the number one uh, chapter in the Bible, outside the book of Revelation, outside of part of Ezekiel, talking about end times. Matthew chapter 24. Here's what's happening uh, in this moment. Uh, Jesus has been walking in the temple mound, 
uh, the disciples looked at the temple and they said, Jesus, man, do you see how cool the temple, I mean, it's amazing. And part of it was there were, there were literally blocks in the temple that weighed 14 tons. They, men had dragged these just behemoth blocks to the temple. And then uh, in the grout lines of the temple, they had covered all the grout with pure gold. I mean, it was just a spectacular building to look at. And the disciples say to Jesus, look, this amazing temple. Jesus responds and says, let me tell you, there's coming a day that there will not be one stone left upon another stone here. And the disciples say to him, well, whoa, whoa, Jesus, when is that going to happen and what will be the signs of the end of the world? Well, what the disciples didn't know in that moment that the temple would end up being destroyed in 70 A.D. Titus would come and destroy the temple. Here's the interesting thing. He took every single stone of the temple off every other stone. You ready? In order to get the gold grout out. But Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 24 to explain the signs of the end of the age, the end of the world, which is what they had asked. Here's what Jesus says about that topic. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. You ready? No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So here's the answer. Jesus said, I don't even know. Someday God's going to say, that's the day, and then that's when I'll come back. But no one knows the day. No one does. How many have driven down the 101 recently, kind of up in the Scottsdale area, and saw a billboard that said, Jesus is coming back May 21st? Anybody see that billboard? Can I just tell you one day that Jesus is not coming back on? <laughs> May 21st. Because the Scripture says no one knows the day. And God's not going to let some twinky theologian ruin it for him. So here's what I guarantee you. If, if God was thinking about coming back on May 21st, he goes, well, he blew it now. <laughs> I was thinking about it, but you ruined it. You know, the truth is, if you don't want Jesus to ever come back, just mark every day on the calendar. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming. <laughs> no one is ever going to accurately pick this day. Jesus said, no one knows this day. But, okay, but, you ready for this? Jesus did say, it's possible to get the idea that we're getting close. Go over to verse 8. Here's what Jesus says. All of these things are the beginning of the birth pains. How, how many women in this room have ever delivered a baby? Okay? Which means, you ready? You've had contractions, birth pains. But as every woman in this room is going to tell you, contractions are not delivery. And when you begin to have contractions, you have no idea how much longer it is. All you know is it's near. Or at least you hope it is. Okay? Can you, guys, you want to you lose your head? Walk up to a woman in the middle of birth pains, in the middle of contractions, say, hey, you know, I got, you got any idea how much longer this is going to be? <laughs> she doesn't know. That's the stupidest question you've ever asked. She doesn't know. All she knows is she wants to rip your face off. Jesus said, when you and I begin to see these things happening, we, we, no one's going to know. All we're going to know is, is that we're probably close and we're probably in the season. Okay? Here's what Jesus described as the birth pains. Now go to verse 4. Jesus answered, watch 
out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of, you ready, wars and rumors of wars. Sound familiar? Can, can you think of another generation that's grown up that's had more conflict than you and I have watched happen in our lifetimes? Just... But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of the birth pains. Now, guys, here's, here's what I don't know. I don't know if it's false labor. You don't know. You ever heard of Braxton Hicks contractions? Okay. If, sometimes you have false labor. So, you know, and so I don't know. But here's what I am telling you is that if you and I are living in a season when these things seem to be happening, then you and I should be anticipating. You and I should be in that moment going, hmm, maybe these are the birth pains. One last thing just real quick. I'll throw it in for free. Lots of people, lots of people out there try to predict the date when Jesus is coming back. You cannot do it. I've already said you cannot do it. This passage, Matthew chapter 24, has the passage that all those guys go to, okay? And so let's take a look at it for just a second, figure out what, what it is that all these, these guys are pointing at. It's uh, verse 32 through uh, 35. Here it is. And let, let me read this to you. This is the passage that all the guys who are trying to set the date, trying to say it's super close, this is the verse they use. It's verse 32, and here's what it says. Now, learn the lesson from the fig tree. And here's why they think it's important. And guys, here's the, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Okay? But uh, what these guys would point to is the fact that the fig tree in Scripture over and over again refers to Israel. Now learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, here's the thing that's interesting about that particular passage. If you go back and look at history you realize that Israel ceased being a nation over 2,000 years ago. They were invaded by the Babylonians. Uh, before they ever got released from that, they were then invaded by the Persians, who were then invaded by the Greeks, who were then invaded by the Romans. And for the next 2,000 years, there was no nation of Israel. Gone. They, they were out and integrated and living amongst all the other nations, but there was no nation of Israel until 1948. So think about this. No nation of Israel for over 2,000 years, 1948, nation of Israel. And Bible scholars will point and say, when you see the fig tree bud, this generation will not miss it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And it's very possible in this passage that when it talks about the fig tree budding, all it's saying is when you see all the other things that are described in Matthew chapter 24, it may have nothing at all to do with Israel. But this is the passage they point to. 
Here's the thing I think you and I should consider today. If the Bible is 100% accurate in prophecy, if, if every time you and I read prophecy in Scripture, it's like reading tomorrow's headline today. If the Bible is that good with prophecy, how accurate do you think the rest of the Bible is? The parts that tell us how to live and the parts that tell us this is wrong and this is right and if you behave this way, you'll always mess your life up. How accurate do you think those parts of the Bible are? Jesus answered your question. Jesus said, look, heaven and earth are more likely to pass away than that the word of God be ever proved to be untrue or wrong. Which means, guys, just think about this for a second. How arrogant is it of us when you and I look at a verse in Scripture and we go, oh, you know what, I... I think, that, I think that's just kind of outdated, and I, I don't think God was considering what life would really be like in the 21st century. And I, you know what? I, I get what God's saying, but he didn't consider all of my circumstances. And so God's a little mistaken over this issue. How absurd is it when you and I look at Scripture and say, I don't think that applies to me. And how crazy would you and I be to live in disobedience to anything that's in God's Word? If he's that accurate about the future, how accurate do you think he is about today? Let's pray. Hey, I, just, I just want you, with heads bowed and eyes closed, just to consider this. Is there any part of the Bible, any part of God's Word that you'd be sitting here and you go, you know what, I know I'm not living in obedience to that. I, I know I've just kind of discounted that part of the Bible because I didn't like it. It, it. it was deeply uncomfortable for me and I just didn't want to deal with it. In, in light of what we've said together today, in, in light of the fact that there's a God who knows tomorrow so accurately that he can write it down. And it happens line for line. How accurate do you think he was about your life? Do you think he knew what he was talking about? And I'm just going to challenge you today. Maybe this is the thing we learn together. That if you are living any part of your life in disobedience to Scripture... Stop it. Stop it. It's crazy. It's crazy to tell the God of the universe who knows tomorrow as if it was today that he didn't understand you or your needs or your circumstances. And just bow the knee and say, God, you wrote it. I don't like it, but I'll obey. Dear Lord Jesus, we, we simply come to this moment. Thank you. Thank you for the Bible and thank you for your scripture that is just 100% accurate, that doesn't have a single flaw or a single mistake. Thank you that you have proved yourself a oh, hundred times over, that you don't. You don't miss the moment. You don't misunderstand. You, you don't misquote yourself. And that God, every time we peek into scripture, we can go there with absolute confidence that you know. You know before it ever happens. You know every detail of what I'm struggling with. You know. 
and scripture speaks accurately. Thank you. Thank you for a Bible like that. In Jesus' name, amen.